If you'd like to follow the reading, it's on page 693, 693. And this morning, it is from Isaiah, chapter 9, and it's verses 1 to 7. Page 693. To us, a child is born. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We will be looking at a number of passages in the Bible, so it'll be very helpful if you can keep the copy of your Bible available, switched on, whichever form of media you use. Before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you're a gracious and a merciful God. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, you came to be our rescuer, to reconcile us with yourself. We ask that you would give us minds which are attentive and hearts which are submissive to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Um, I'd like to begin with a question. And it's a question especially for you if you regard yourself as an open-minded skeptic, shall we say. Perhaps you're someone who's interested in Christianity. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Perhaps you'd like to know more, but you are not really convinced. Perhaps you're someone who's been coming to this church for decades. Perhaps you're still not really quite convinced. The question is, what kind of God would you hope for? What kind of God would the ideal God be? What would he do? I'd suggest that if you think about it, then you'd probably want him to be a God who is a God of revelation. He's a God who reveals the truth. 
who gives you the truth about the world as it is and about you. You would want him, as it were, to be a prophet, a prophet who reveals. You'd want him to be a God of reconciliation, a God that allows you to be reconciled with your family and with the people around you and with God himself. You'd want him to be a priest, a reconciler. And you'd want him, I suggest, to reign. You'd want him to be a sovereign, a powerful, but a good and a loving God. You'd want him to be a king who reigns. In the run-up to Christmas, we're looking at different aspects and characteristics and views of Christ. We're looking at him, and we're looking at him because we believe, and Scripture tells us, that he is the ultimate prophet, he is the ultimate priest, and he is the ultimate king. So last week, Rob took us through the fact that he is a prophet like Moses. Next week, we'll see that he is a priest like Melchizedek. And today, we're looking at the fact that he is a king like David. Now, when we're doing that this morning, what we'll do is we'll consider three topics. We'll look at what is a king like David. We'll look at the fact that Christ is the king like David. And then we'll look at why should you care. So what is a king like David? Christ is the king like David, and why should you care? Now that structure may sound vaguely familiar to you if you were here last week, because it was similar to one used by Rob. And there's a good reason for that. The reason is that I stole it. <laughs> it's not 100% word for word. My plagiarism is far more refined and subtle than that but it is stolen, with permission, of course. So what is a king like David? So if someone were to ask you, what is the Old Testament about? What, what is the Bible about? What's the Old Testament about? You might say, well, you know, it's about Israel. It's about stories about Israel, the nation of Israel, their poems, their kings, their, their meandering across wilderness, about their dealings with God. And you would partially be right. Because the Old Testament and the Bible as a whole isn't primarily about Israel, it is about God. It is about God and his rescue plan for his people. It's about how even before creation, before everything was brought into being, God conceived of and even initiated his rescue plan. It's about a plan of redemption. That plan is hinted at in the Garden of Eden, and it's then unpacked and unfolds throughout the rest of the Bible. That's what the Bible is about. It's about God and his rescue plan. And as the Bible unfolds that rescue plan, a number of big themes start to emerge. And one of the biggest, most prominent, most important, and most dominant themes is that of kingdom. Kingdom. Now, the actual phrase... Emerge, emerges a little bit later, not quite at the very beginning, but the idea and the reality of king and kingdom are there right from the start. We see it in a sovereign who reigns over all. We see it in a creator who has complete power, in a king who has complete power, not limited as in our constitutional monarchy, but complete. We see it in creation in an all-powerful God who creates, we see it in the Garden of Eden, a place in which he reigns. We see it in a covenant with Abraham, in which he promises Abraham a kingdom people. 
And we see it emerge with Israel, with Israel who then goes through countless ups and downs and then eventually find themselves united under one king, David, from whose line the rescuer will come. It is the theme of kingdom. But the theme of kingdom is seen and is realized and is implemented in two ways. Firstly, God's kingdom is creation, and God is sovereign over it. He reigns over everything. As Don Carson puts it, it is primordial. It came from eternity, and it will go on to eternity. You don't choose to be part of that kingdom. You already are. You cannot escape it. You are never outside it, and you never will be. You are in the ki- that kingdom of God, whether you like it or not. You are accountable to God the King. It doesn't matter whether you're in heaven, where nobody contests his reign, or you're on earth, where many contest his reign, or you're in hell, where all contest his reign. You are all part of that created kingdom. That's why David in Psalm 145 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. That's why Nebuchadnezzar, not an Israelite at all, the king of the Babylonians, after learning the hard way, says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. God is sovereign and king over his created kingdom for all eternity. That's the first way in which we see kingdom. But secondly, we see a subset of that created kingdom emerge as part of God's rescue plan. A subset referred to as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And it's a subset in which there is eternal life. So that same Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And he has a dream about a succession of earthly kingdoms. And kingdom after kingdom arises and falls and arises and falls until eventually one arises which sweeps away all of the others that lay before it. And God reveals the meaning of that through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So this is a kingdom that arrives at a point in time. It hasn't always existed. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom, he says, but it will always exist from then on. It will be eternal. It shall stand forever, he says. Now we see this kingdom, and we see the king of that kingdom hinted at in Genesis when we read God saying to Satan, I will put enmity, I will put conflict between you and the woman, and I will, between your offspring and hers. He will, strike your, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. It's hinted at there. We see that kingdom start to emerge when God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
And then we see that kingdom explicitly called out by God when he's talking to Moses in Exodus 19. And he says, If you will indeed obey my voice, if you will keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a kingdom that emerges at a point in time primarily through the nation of Israel. The problem is, Israel misunderstands. They think that this is going to be a physical kingdom, but it's not. So fast forward to the time of Christ. Jesus is sitting, standing in front of Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a member of the Jewish ruling council. And they're talking about eternal life and they're talking about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says to him, no one can see, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This isn't a physical kingdom for now. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's the same kingdom that Daniel referred to, and it's made up of people who have to enter into it. Some are part of it, and some are not. And unlike the kingdom of creation, which we are all part of by default, to be part of this kingdom, to become part of the kingdom of God, means undergoing a significant change, a transformation, being born again, as Christ puts it. So we have the kingdom of creation, which we are all part of by virtue of being created. And as a subset of that, we have the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, which we become part of by being rescued, by being born again. But what about the monarch? What about the king over this kingdom? Well, the reality is that God is portrayed and as the king over this kingdom throughout the Old Testament. He is the lawgiver. He is the one who judges his people. He is the one who is sovereign. He's the great shepherd king caring for his people. But even from the time of Moses, what you start to see is you start to see God talking about a human king, a king who would reign over his people. So in Deuteronomy chapter 17, God talks to Moses about the fact that they will have a king, one whom he would choose. And so eventually, after being ruled by a whole series of judges, most of whom were incompetent, some of whom were not. Israel starts to clamor for a king with the wrong motives, but they start to clamor for a king. And God lets them have a king, and they end up with Saul. And he shows great promise. But he is really disappointing, because he emerges as a very insecure man, as a man who is after power more than anything, as a man who tries to take over even the priesthood, and in his desperation, he realizes he is not the right king. Everything eventually collapses. He falls in disgrace. He dies. And it all seems to be a disaster. But in the middle of the wreckage, God is preparing the right king for them. Someone whom he calls a man after my own heart. And David emerges onto the scene. And for all his faults, and he had many, for all his faults, David is the great king that the, that the hum, is the human king that the nation of Israel wished for. He rules over the southern tribes for seven years. He reunites the tribes. He rules over the nation of Israel for 33 years. He establishes the capital in Jerusalem. Israel enjoys great periods of peace, of prosperity, of blessing, of victory. 
And he prepares everything for the building of the temple by his son, Solomon. And then God gives him a promise, an amazing promise that we all benefit from. So please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 311 in your Bible. 2 Samuel 7, page 311. And this is a key chapter, and in this chapter, it outlines the promise that God makes to David, right? And then eventually, David turns and he says this to God in verse 27. O Lord Almighty God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house, he means a dynasty, for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house, the dynasty of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing the house of your servant will be blessed forever. At one level he's talking about the succession of Solomon that will come, but it's also clear from his language that God is promising so much more. He's promising David that from his line, someone will emerge who will reign forever, an eternal reign. The house of your servant will be blessed forever. This is 1,000 years before Christ. 300 years later, Israel is nothing like it was under David. They're a fragmented nation. They're disloyal to God. They're looking at exile where they eventually end up. But God doesn't forget his promise. And he doesn't allow them to forget the promise. And so he sends a prophet to remind them. Please turn to Isaiah 9, page 693. This is what was read earlier. Page 693. And what we see is that more details start to emerge about the Davidic king who was to come. Verse 1, chapter 9. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. It's an amazingly specific prophecy. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the reign, the right to rule will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So those details that start to emerge tell us that while being from the line of David, this king will be something far, far greater and far, far more. What you're given is a picture of a king who is so supreme, so like God, so associated with God, that he is unlike any Davidic king. And soon after this, 
Not long after this at all, in Ezekiel 34, God himself says again and again and again that he himself will come and shepherd his people, that he will come and reign, that he will come and rule over them directly, that he will nurture them, that he will be their shepherd, that God himself will do this. And then at the end of that, after saying more than 20 times that he will be their shepherd, that he will come and reign, God says... I will send my servant David to do so. What you're seeing is that the coming Davidic king is the coming of God himself. What you're seeing is that God himself will come in the coming of the promised king. And more details emerge. So while in Isaiah you have reference to Galilee, like we just read, in Micah chapter 5, you learn that this king will be born in Bethlehem. And more details emerge. But for now, it seems so bleak for the covenant people of God. Where are the promises? The temple's destroyed. They're maintaining the genealogical records, but there isn't a Davidic king on the throne. They return after the end of the exile. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the city under Nehemiah. But there is still no Davidic king, not a real one. For hundreds of years, it seems as if God is silent. And eventually, the Romans are in power, and they put in place puppet kings, men like Herod. But then, a guiding light appears, and the Magi come, and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Which brings us to our next section, Christ is the king like David. Christ is the king like David. Please turn to Luke chapter 1, page 1026. This is when Gabriel, Gabriel the angel, appears to Mary with what must have felt like an amazing but also a pretty terrifying message. So reading from verse 31, <clears throat> Luke 1, 31. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. It's clear from the Bible that Jesus is David's descendant. He's the one in whom God's promise to David is fulfilled. He's the one who will rule forever. He's the king born in Bethlehem. His kingdom will never end. It's clear from his birth that this is the promised son of David. But then there's his life. So some 30 years later, John the Baptist appears with a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And by that he means turn from your former life and be reconciled to God because the king is here. And so the kingdom is imminent. It's on the threshold, it's close, it's near to you because he is here. Now is the time, is what John is saying. And so in chapter 4 of his account, Matthew tells us that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus performs those miracles and he transforms lives and he heals and he raises the dead. 
And they are all blaring announcements, loud declarations saying, look, the kingdom is near, it's here, it is dawning, it is time. It's clear from his life that this is the promised son of David. And then there's his death. Christ's authority isn't based on self-promotion. He's not trying to build a platform and a following. He's not trying to earn the respect of the powers that be. He's not trying to be well spoken of. He's seeking the ultimate good of his people, and that takes him all the way to the cross. And he offers himself up as a ransom to secure our salvation. And he tells his disciples, the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But he not only gives his life on the cross, he reigns from the cross. So while those soldiers are mocking him and spitting on him and laughing at him and pointing to the title inscribed above his head, saying mockingly, Hail, King of the Jews, what they don't realize is that he really is the King of the Jews and he really is reigning while he's hanging there, implementing our rescue plan. And as it says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. That's why for the first three centuries of the church, Christians often spoke with self-conscious irony. Our king reigns from the cross. It's clear from his death that this is the promised son of David. But then there's his resurrection and his reign and his return. So he doesn't stay in the grave, but as was prophesied, he's raised up again after three days, and he goes on to appear to hundreds of witnesses. And then he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he ascends to be seated at the right hand of God as king, reigning over his kingdom, reigning over everything even though it is for now a contested reign. Contested until he destroys the last enemy, death itself, and until he returns to stand before us as judge and as king. So how do we know that Christ is the promised king like David? We know it because it's a matter of historical record. We know it because we know it from his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. We know it because in our personal experience, we know his loving and his gracious reign in our lives as his subjects, and we know it from the experience of his loving, gracious reign in the life of the church. Jesus Christ is the king like David. But why should you care? Lastly, Well, some of the reasons are obvious, right, given what I've said. Given the fact that we will all face Christ as judge and king one day, relying for reconciliation, relying for reconciliation with God on the good things we have done, which is slightly terrifying, or on the good things Christ has done, given given that, some of the reasons why we should care are obvious. But there is one question we need to consider, and it's this, who becomes part of this kingdom? Who inherits the kingdom? Who lives under Christ's loving rule? What does that person look like? I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. There's a professor of ethics and philosophy in the States by the name of Jay Bushashevsky. He got his PhD at Yale, 
and he was a nihilist for many years. So he wasn't just an atheist, but he took his atheism to its logical conclusion. And he said, if matter is all there is, there is no purpose in living, and we may as well end it all. And that's what he lobbied for. Fortunately for us, he became a Christian before he acted on his belief in the complete annihilation of all mankind. And he talks about why he was a nihilist. And he gives a number of reasons. And he gives the typical five or six reasons you would expect an atheist and a nihilist to give. And then he ends with an insightful and a very honest closing remark. And he says this, The main reason I was a nihilist, the reason that tied all these other reasons together was sheer mulish pride. I didn't want God to be God. I wanted J. Bushashevsky to be God. I see that now, but I didn't see it then. I was blessed with a strong mind. A strong mind that refuses the call to serve God has its own way of going wrong. When some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of these things. My way of fleeing was to get stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be highly intelligent and educated to achieve. Now, he's obviously being intentionally provocative to make a point, right? And the point he's making is crisply summarized in a number of places in the Bible, one of which is Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, fear is being used in the sense of awe, of giving God the honor that is his due, of acknowledging that he is our good creator, that he is our just judge, and that he is our sovereign king. And Jay honestly acknowledged that all the other reasons for denying God were just a smokescreen. The fundamental problem was pride. Jay didn't want God to be God. He didn't want God to be king in his life. Jay wanted Jay to be king in his life. But when he stepped aside, when he relinquished the throne of his life to Christ the King, when he submitted his will to that of Christ, he became like the person described by Christ in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's when he went on to delight in a life following the foot, in the footsteps of his servant King. That's when he went on, as Christ said, to rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in the kingdom of heaven. If you're that skeptic I mentioned at the beginning, then you need to know that God extends an invitation to you. John Piper puts it very well when he says that God extends an invitation to you to make God's covenant with David a covenant with you. So, Isaiah 55, page 742, your last bit of page turning. Isaiah 55. <clears throat> come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. The same mercy and faithfulness that guarantees David an eternal kingdom guarantees you all the joy and the righteousness and the peace of the kingdom if you will come to him. God is saying, if you will come to me empty-handed and hungry, willing to receive what I'll give, I will treat you forever with the same mercy and faithfulness that I've shown in my promise to David. And it's clear that it's Christ himself who's extending that invitation because he says in Revelation 22, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. He calls you to come to the Son of David, to come to the King of Kings, and to join the kingdom of heaven, to know a God who will be your prophet, your priest, and your king. Who wouldn't come, given such an offer? Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are our rescuer, you are our sovereign king, you have secured our salvation. We thank you that you've offered us the same mercy and faithfulness that guaranteed David an eternal kingdom and which guarantees us a place in that kingdom. We pray that you would give life to any here who do not know you, that they too may enjoy the delight of your eternal reign. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.